Any opinions expressed are my own and do not reflect the opinions of anyone outside of Independent Left Media, LLC. Independentleft.news. Indie. Indie. What's up, Indie? Indie News Network. Indie. I get news from Independent Left. Independentleft.news. Independentleft.news. Indie Left Media. Independent Left News. Indie Left. Independent Left News. Independent Left Media. Indie Media. Indie Left. Indie. 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 Indie Left News. Indie Left. Hi, Indie. Indie Left News. Subscribe to Indie News Network. We're world building. Your, your way of assisting, I feel like, is really cool. Independentleft.news. Independentleft.news. I'm a huge fan. He created INN. The founder of uh, Independent News Network. Indy is the founder of Indie News Network. Thank you, Independentleft.news. A huge thank you and shout out to Indy Left. Everyone, check out Indy Left News. Hey, Indy Left. Independentleft.news. Indy. Indy. Hi, Indy. Indy Left. Indy Left News. Indy News. Independent Media. Independentleft News has done an amazing Thanks, job. Hey everybody, what's going on? Holy crap, it's Sunday night already, it's 10 o'clock. It's time for How Did We Miss That? Uh, I see we got some some fam already here. Good to see E. Heller and of course, of course Anthony Malecki and Gear Brown. And I'm guessing we're going to see some friends like Frankie and, and some other folks. I'm guessing Eric T. Red will pop his head in and some other folks. Uh, we have a big, big show. We have a lot of story, at least four big stories to cover. I know Reef's got some some fun stuff for boats, uh, so I want to get right into it. So I will just go into my little spiel. Welcome everybody to How Do We Miss That? So How Do We Miss That is a show and podcast streaming live on Rockfin. We are on Rockfin, YouTube, Twitch, Rumble, Facebook, Twitter, Odyssey, and Telegram. Also, we're on Substack and IndependentLeft.News. Sunday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern. That's now 7 p.m. Pacific. Available on all your favorite podcast platforms afterward as well. Uh, it's co-hosted by Indy, that's me, founder and editor of independentleft.news and leftist.today substack. And uh, this guy, Reef Breland, he is INN's technical director. He is the host of Reefer After Dark and INN News, and he is the creator of the Jimmy Dore unofficial Discord, which has 850 plus members and counting, growing daily. All the stories that you're going to see tonight. And the beauty of this Beauty and the Boomer. Well... Well, shout out to Oz. Oh, Beauty and the Boomer in the house. What's up, Oz? And we got Rick Solis is here. I am Randy Weaver. Oh, guy. we've got, we've got, uh, see, I turned my head and I turned away from chat. So, uh, also, all the stories were featured in independentleft.news between Sunday and Friday this week. It's impossible to keep up with this fire hose of developing news on independentleft.news all week long. These are just four big stories out of the hundreds that, uh, that I was able to pick out. So, please make sure to share this link. Like the stream, subscribe to our channels on all the platforms that you watch and listen. Uh, we're everywhere, you know. Uh, again, we've got our ticker in the bottom. We're thanking all of all of our donors and our patrons and Rockfin subscribers. Everybody's so so great, so so great in contributing. Also, want to give a big shout out to Big Man Crab, who may even be here tonight. Uh, big Man Crab does all the thumbnails. He's our creative director over at INN. Uh, Jimmy. Of course, uh, uh, Jimmy, uh, she did our trailer. I love the, the, that new trailer, just killing it. Uh, Phantom Moss Fanto doing our editing and making all the clips. Fred Edward, who is over on the Rockfin right now, and he, he does all the sharing over on Twitter and Facebook, and he's great. Resident Skeptic Chris Gilman sharing over on Instagram as well. Thank you, everybody. Seriously, this is such a team effort. I appreciate everybody. I also want to mention that we're both founding members of Indie News Network, which is a collaborative family of 23 independent content creators 
You can go to IndieNews.network and find all of the links to, to all the channels for INN, as well as uh, a, a, another link to find all the members and all their all their links and find out who they are and subscribe and hook them up with some coin and find some new people and figure out that, wow, some of these other people that I love are also part of INN. 23 content creators. I think this is the biggest independent network there is pretty much. So sure. yeah. How about that? Huh? I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, yeah. is there, is there really one that has more, more channels, more people on more platforms doing more stuff? I, I can't really think of too many, so that's I'm pretty proud of that and pretty exciting to, to be part of. Um, again, shout out to all my yeah. INN family. We got we got Chris Legion who streamed this week for the first time on INN. Go check out Chris Legion. Uh, subscribe to him on YouTube, K-R-I-S, Legion, L-E-G-I-O-N, at Legion Socialist on the Twitters. And um, <clears throat> go hit, go hook him up for sure. He, he, he's, he's doing great streams. He's also over on Rumble now too. All right, so we're going to get to our first story. Boom, that's our thumbnail for tonight. Welcome to chat. All right, so we've got four different stories uh, on climate. We're going to talk about unions and, and organizing. We're going to talk about uh, corruption and whistleblowers, and we're going to talk about campaign finance, which are four things that we actually cover quite a bit here on how do we miss that. So I kind of feel like this, is, this episode is a little bit emblematic of the things that we usually do here. So Pakistan, climate polluters must pay. But it's not just about Pakistan. This is a Jeffrey Sachs article that, that was in Common Dreams this week. Um, some people may have seen it, but Pakistan's devastation is just a preview of the future, and the biggest climate polluters must pay up. And I think this is talking a little bit about the, you know, 71% of polluters are coming from the top 100 corporations, U.S. military. So, again, all a lot of this stuff to me is window dressing and talking about the things that we personally can do. And it's, uh, it's a daunting time out there. But, okay, so the developing world, again, will not forget the leading role that industrialized economies have played in permanently altering the climate and making catastrophic events more likely. And I think that, again, you know, look at this. It was the, the flooding in Pakistan. We covered this, what, two weeks ago? And it's... Devastating. So around the world, 2022 has been a year of climate catastrophes, including droughts, floods, mega fires, typhoons, and more. <laughs> Sounds like a horror flick, right? Among the hardest hit countries is Pakistan, with torrential monsoon rainfall almost 190% above its 30-year average. Extraordinary flooding has submerged one-third of the country and killed 1,400 people so far. But make no mistake, this is not only a natural disaster, rather, again, it is the result of malfeasance for which high-income countries must bear financial responsibility. That's what he's talking about. Yeah. Pakistan's flood can clearly be linked to human-induced climate change. Because warmer air holds more moisture, higher temperatures generally mean heavier monsoons. While monsoons have, general, have, have natural year-to-year -year variation, being strong in some years, weak in others, Probability distribution is shifting toward heavier rainfall. Melting of Himalayan gla glaciers due to rising temperatures may also be contributing to increased flooding. This at the same time is true of land use changes, including deforestation and poorly designed infrastructure. You add all these things up together and it's just a freaking nightmare. The cost of the floods is going to be enormous. Est early estimates putting it $30 billion or more. Well, <laughs> we just sent $100 billion to Ukraine, so I guess there's money coming from somewhere, right? Um, and the coming months are going to bring e increased 
hunger, disease, poverty, and massive rebuilding costs now that more than one million homes, oh God, have been damaged or destroyed. Right, so trust the science. Scientists will likely come up with careful estimates for attribution of floods in the months ahead. You know, uh, suppose hypothetically that half of their losses are are ultimately attributed to long-term climate change. The other half to random year-to-year -year variation in local land use practices. Well, that would mean around $15 billion of the estimated losses would result from climate change directly. Right? Orale. Question would then return to allocating responsibility for these climate attributable costs you know how do we who how do we pay for that who's going to pay for that and somebody is going to in the end otherwise you know it's going to be rebuilt somehow it's not just going to lay there and waste at least yeah. we hope but then again look at louisiana uh under current global arrangements financial responsibility falls almost entirely on pakistan to be sure, the U.S. has pledged, mm -hmm. pledged around $50 million in relief. Canada's committed $5 million. Other countries likely to join in. But even if total relief reached $150 million, that would cover 1% of the attributable losses in this scenario. Now, consider an alternative way of assigning responsibility based on countries' respective contributions to climate change. This is how liability in the U.S. and other countries generally works. If your neighbor damages your property through reckless behavior, you can sue for damages. And if a nearby factory pollutes an entire community, that community can sue as a group through class action lawsuit in the case of the United States. Right? So right. the world's rich countries are like that polluting factory. Um, they deprive Pakistan of the long-term uh, climactic conditions in, on which it's built its economy, homes, farms, and infrastructure. If there was a global climate court, Pakistan's government would have a strong case against the U.S. and other high-income countries for failing to limit climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. But since there's no global climate court yet, right, or in the near future, well, let's see what the World Economic Forum has to say about that. Uh, government should act like yeah. one. <laughs> government should act like one and allocate attributable climate loss uh, losses and damages to those countries that are historically responsible for them. Well, that's that's nice. That's that's wishes and dreams. Um, Pakistan yep. and its neighbors in the Himalayas would, of course, have the core responsibility for the sustainable management of the land, including reforestation and climate-safe infrastructure. The biggest single source of human-endorsed climate change, and I think this is human-induced climate change, is the atmosphere concentration of CO2 emissions resulting from the combustion of fossil fuels, natural oil, natural gas, oil, and coal. Because some CO2 molecules emitted into the atmosphere remain there for centuries, focusing on cumulative emissions for over long periods of time is crucial. Like, again, mm -hmm. th this sounds a lot like Bear Bear Pig, you know? Um, this sounds like, like Al Gore, uh, I, I have to say. You know, this, this reads very similar to An Inconvenient Truth 2004. Uh, between 1850 and 2020 now, burning fossil fuels re resulted in cumulative emissions 1.69 trillion tons of CO2. Of that total, we're accounting for almost a quarter, which is much greater than it than, right. than our share of the 2021 world population, which is roughly 4.2 percent. So we're we're using quite a bit more than others, obviously. You know, you can see uh, high-income countries combined account for 58.7 percent of cumulative CO2 emissions, but only 15% of today's world population. So 
where it's certainly the polluters, of course. I mean, that's not a surprise because we're the ones that are consuming fossil fuels to power all of our machines and 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 our lives, um, which they're not necessarily using as much and they're having to be much more efficient with what they have and go without quite often. Um, by contrast, Pakistan uh, contributed roughly 5.2 billion tons of CO2 between 1850 and 2020, which is roughly what the U.S. emits every year. That's over the entire lifetime of the country in 170 years. Okay. Yep. And therefore, its share of historical responsibility is around 0.3%, far below the share its share of global population, which is almost 3%. And its burden of climate-related damage. Mm -hmm. So clearly, you know, we are on a six X scale minimum. Even if it, if they were polluting at a one X, and they're polluting it at a one tenth X, so it's really six hundred times. It's we're it's we're all polluting. About geometry. Yeah, it's all about geometry. I'm a math guy, so I'm a I'm a dork. But literally, like it's six. <laughs> we're We are six hundred times more polluters than Pakistan. Yeah, they're the ones that have to bear the brunt. And I think that's really the whole argument here. All right. There is some debate yeah. over what dates to use. So do you use 1850? Okay, because that's when worldwide fossil fuel, fossil fuel use surged. Wow, that's a tongue twister right there with early U.S. and European industrialization. But another camp would start the clock at, in 1992. Now, that's ridiculous because there was so much industrialization that happened prior to 1992. But that's when they decided to stand to come up with like some kind of a standard framework where everybody was kind of on an equal footing and you could measure from that point forward. Uh, either way, it's really, really egregious. But again, this, de this debate hardly affects the, the apportionment of responsibility. If, even if we measure from just the 1992, U.S. share is almost 20%, high-income groups almost 47%, and Pakistan's just the same at like 0.4 instead of 0.3. It's like nothing. All right, either way, rich countries should bear their fair share of the attributable costs of climate change adaptation, emergency response, recovery in countries that played little to no role, which, yeah, I can totally see a Republican government apportioning more money uh, towards Pakistan after they had a massive flooding of more than a, a token amount to not make them seem like the most heartless people on the planet, even though they already are going to be no matter what. Um, right. So... Yeah, as climate change da uh, damages increase, so too does the need for large-scale costly investments, which massive reforestation, flood control, and who's going to, who's paying for all this, right? The current disasters are just a preview of what awaits us in the coming years and decades. So, like, what are we going to do? Too often, rich and powerful countries deny their historical responsibilities, whether for colonialism, slavery, or climate damage. All countries are responsible for decarbonizing their energy systems and managing their land and ecosystems responsibly and sustainably. Yet, the developing world will not forget the leading role that rich countries have played in creating today's worldwide climate disasters. As climate-related losses rapidly mount, global demands for climate justice will only grow. You know, um, and that's a lot of um, talk on the theoretical level about what should potentially happen. Um, what do you think on that one, dude? I mean, I mean, you see with Puerto Rico dealing with this too, right? Like now as well. I mean, it, they do have a point that this is definitely climate related. It's, you know, like 
issue being is how some group is deciding to act on those climate problems. Rico, Haiti, I mean, Um, these disasters are happening so often and more often, and they're Mm -hmm. happening more violently, and they're happening here too. But how are are we going to to do preventative measures as well as like, we've already spilled the milk. You got to like clean that up, you know? Like, this is this is where yeah you we gotta take precautions for the disasters that are coming, which that's not happening at all. We're sending how much how much in, is we just sent to a country in you know like Eastern Europe, like hundred billion dollars for what? Yeah, yeah. Um, Florida's gonna have to worry about those same things. Like we're underwater within, you know, again, flooding, they're talking about the shelf of West Antarctica falling off within the next like couple of mm-hmm. years, maximum. And yep. when if and when that happens, um yikes. You're gonna need um, seawalls, water it's, infrastructure, it's, like I, I hope you have an umbrella and the some levees snorkels. are still only rated to a class three New Orleans. New Orleans still only rated to a class three in those same spots. You know, you know what I'm talking about right near where that ward used to be the ninth, like still the same. You're just waiting for something to like run through those bowling pins. Oh man. Like how many, how many class four hurricanes are coming in now? It feels like they're, you know, hurricane season lasts longer and it's again, more often, more violent. More frequent, and nope. and and hitting a bigger area too. That's the other thing is that they come further north. You know now we're yep. we're seeing them coming up like yeah, the you guys east coast of Jersey and stuff. Yeah, like we mm-hmm. we're not equipped to deal with that kind of like stuff. Like a class three. Woo. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we've had a couple of them. In the Sometimes last... they're sneaking by Florida, coming up the Atlantic, like which you normally doesn't happen that often. Like the town that I live oh. in was literally on the on the news twice in the last decade for for being heavily underwater. Um it's yeah. It's pretty pretty brutal. Now we're on the opposite end on the mountain, so we're not going to mm-hmm. be underwater, but I certainly feel for my and they they made that a flood zone so you can't even live there anymore, but um Yeah, I mean, look at what happened there and again, now we're going to see China help pay to rebuild. What was the article? Infrastructure. The other day about insurers. Do we have that tonight or is that? No. Um, no, I didn't. But how? Six that. Cause that's, yeah, I, I killed that one. Yeah. But, go ahead. But yeah, no, go, go um, ahead. Share that. What's up? Bear? Oh, I was saying that like, what, who, who did that uh, piece? Was that? I forget. Um, but. They were talking about how insurers are essentially going to stop paying for flood insurance and disaster insurance. Um, because it's it's just like too costly of a thing for them to do now. Yeah, wildfire insurance right? in California. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. It's not gonna do it anymore. Not Sorry. that you already couldn't afford it. Nope. You know? Nope. So, it's just that they it's, who did that article, do you remember? I don't remember, but it's it's just like if you're if they're guaranteed as an insurance company to have to pay that your house is going to burn down and they're going to have to replace it at some point. What's the premium for that? A yeah. guaranteed replacement house within X amount of time. Maybe next week. I mean it's it's brutal. It's brutal. 
Um, welcome, Rick Solis. Ha- Capitalism's a hell of a drug. We got Joe STFU shit live on Twitter. Everybody go check him out. Go follow him. He's putting out some amazing stuff. He did the, the videos for the Amazon piece that we did this week in INN Substack. By the way, I think everybody here saw it or was part of it, but we did put out a crazy piece, a crazy long piece in depth on the uh, Amazon labor union, Chris Smalls, and the red flags that we're seeing about alignment and co-optation by the DNC and the Democrats. So give that a read when you, if you get a chance. We're actually going to tie into that right now because our next article is a left voice article written by a couple of couple, couple sharp dudes. Luigi Morris, for sure, uh, I know, and I know um, Je- James Dennis Hoff also. So this article is called, Now More Than Ever, The Working Class Needs Independent Democratic Unions. And Colin's going to scream, but wait, where's the co-ops? And I'm, I feel you. And that is the eventual long-term goal. Where do we go right now? Because there's too many people that aren't getting on board with necessarily owning a co-op and... Like I was, you know, Colin and I started having this conversation last night and a co-op is a commitment. A co-op is not just showing up to work and punching out at five o'clock and not everybody wants to do that. Number one, not everybody's ready to make that commitment. Number two, and we have to have some kind of step to get them there to show them that uh, at least having a say and voting and being involved in your, in the management of your company on a day-to-day basis um, is important. And I think that it's a good intermediary step, potentially, as long as it does not get, like we're going to talk about here. Again, I think that our friend uh, Shadowban Refugee is going to have some opinions, uh, I'm guessing, about this as well. So will Chris Legion. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I don't agree with everything that's in here, but I thought it was really important. So again, recently discussions around unionization have become a national conversation, which is awesome. New workplaces are unionizing, and the question of how to ensure their democratic functioning is the order of the day. And I think that some of the stuff you will absolutely agree with. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I do think people should, like right off the bat, be focusing on worker co-ops as your whole loaf of bread. Um, you know, uh, yes. Who was it? Was it Hedges the other day talking about co-ops? Somebody also was recently. I'm sure somebody in chat will tell me. It's either Colin, Hedges or, or Wolf, probably um, Professor Wolf. Yeah, it might have been Wolf. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah. So again, I started reading this and I'm like, okay, this is a good one. Now, again, this is going to be a little long. This is going to be kind of like our featured article of the night. The next two aren't going to be as long, but I think that this one was super important to get through. And this could potentially spark a lot of discussion and introduce the, the Amazon article as well. But Long maligned and misunderstood, labor unions are all suddenly are suddenly all the rage, right? Particularly among young people. New mm-hmm. unions are being organized by Amazon warehouse workers in Staten Island, uh, Starbucks workers at more than 210 stores across the country, and now workers at Apple Store, Chipotle, and Trader Joe's. And they're inspiring others to do the same. This is exciting and unprecedented. Uh, new wave of grassroots unionization, if successful, could reshape the labor movement as we know it, but success is far from guaranteed. Sounds familiar. These workers and their new leaders are up against some some of the wealthiest and most powerful corporations in the country. Amazon, for instance, has waged a massive multi-million dollar campaign to weaken the new labor union and to stop further unionization efforts and attempts at its warehouses, an effort that so far seems to be working. 
Meanwhile, Starbucks and Chipotle have both adopted scorched earth tactics, firing organizers and supporters, sometimes closing down entire stores in order to break the fledgling unions. And we've covered several of those actions and, you know, illegal actions here. Even companies that have long been unionized, such as UPS, have been brazenly firing worker activists in advance of new contract negotiations. These attacks are designed to weaken the morale of union supporters and dissuade workers from further organizing. Unfortunately, the boss is not the only threat to these initiatives. Shadowband will agree, the big bureaucratic unions, such as the AFL-CIO and the SEIU, and their national leaders have a long history of absorbing and co-opting such grassroots unionization efforts, diverting direct conflict with the bosses into lukewarm media campaigns, such as the Fight for 15, which is should be the Fight for 25 at this point, legislative struggles and get-out-the-vote efforts for Democratic politicians, all while weeding out and displacing more militant rank-and-file members within bureaucrats and staffers. And these same pressures exist in more established private and public sector unions everywhere. Consequently, if we want to truly win greater power for working people, we will need to build fighting rank-and-file unions that can directly challenge not only the boss, but also the system of exploitation and state repression that stands behind every employer. This means rejecting the old models of bureaucratic, bureaucratic business unionism and instead building politically independent organizations that are democratically organized and run by working people themselves from the bottom up. Hell yeah. Yep. As we organize new unions, and as those new unions grow, workers will feel the intense pressure to conform to old models of organization, to play along, to get along, and to work within the state system. Already, the Democratic Party and even the president himself has sought to co-opt the Amazon labor movement, promising political and legislative support in exchange for labor peace and a good working relationship with the state's own NLRB. Defeating these efforts will require yep. nothing less than a revolution within the labor movement. And that revolution begins by making our unions truly democratic spaces for the struggles of working people. Again, I can't find anything so far to argue with. So far, I'm going, yes, right? Unions as organizations of the working class. Though it may not always feel like it, unions are fundamentally organizations of the working class for the working class. They are some of the most important spaces where working people can come together to fight collectively over the use of their labor. And by withholding that labor, workers can win incredible gains. Unions are also defensive organizations confronting and pushing back the attacks of the bosses who constantly seek to squeeze more profit out of each worker. At the same time, unions are a tool to fight for broad class interests and against state repression and austerity. Understanding why unions matter requires that we understand the inherently exploitative nature of capitalism. And I think, again, Rick, Rick said it, capitalism is the disease. The boss's wealth comes yep. from exploiting our labor. You know, they hire us and use our labor for their own interest, but they pay us only a fraction of the value we produce. Consequently, they're always seeking various methods to increase their profits at our expense, whether by increasing levels of exploitation, speeding up production, reducing our wages and benefits, or creating new technologies to replace us. This means workers and bosses have inherently counter-opposed counter interests. Um, 
confronting these bosses and the state that defends them, therefore, requires the collective organization of the working class as a class. No, what is it? What is it? Uh, what do they call it? No, 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 something but class. Was it no race? It's not a race issue. It's a class issue all day long. Right. To do that. We have to make our unions into instruments of the class struggle. Right. Only struggles class struggle. But we also have an obsolete, an obstacle Always in our own been. house. Right. We also have an obstacle in our own house. Union misleaders are well known for their top-down and undemocratic way of conducting themselves. Therefore, to build fight new fighting unions and to put our current unions at the service of workers, there are two fundamental principles that we must adopt. Maximum union democracy and total independence from the state and the bosses. What does that mean? Yep. So ask any labor bureaucrat about the importance of democracy as a principle of union organization, and they'll inevitably tell you that democracy is essential to building a strong union. But the so-called democracy that now exists in our unions is, with few exceptions, little more than fiction. It's a farce performed every few years to vote on a proposed contract or new leadership. The day-to-day -day decision making and organization of our unions are frequently left to a very small group of misleaders and full-time staffers whose interests often only tangentially aligned with the rank-and-file workers they claim to represent. For these bureaucrats, mean, maintaining the union's, dues, the, the union's dues base is often their first priority. And anything that threatens the continued stability of the union and its ongoing happy relationship with the state, such as sympathy strikes or other supposedly illegal work activities, are treated as existential, existential threats. Kind of got marble mouth tonight. In such a democracy, debate, organization, and labor struggle are all limited and tightly controlled. Limited hangout, as Whitney Webb likes to say. The decisions of when and whether to strike or take other work actions are frequently brought to the rank-and-file workers only after the leadership has decided on them. And this often goes double for contract proposals related to wages, benefits, and working conditions. When presented with weak contracts by their leaders, for instance, workers are often told this is the best they can win, and without a democratic forum to actually discuss and debate the, the merits of such contracts or the real conditions of struggle as they exist, workers rarely get the chance to fight for anything better. Workers' real democracy, on the other hand, looks very different. To build truly democratic unions, we must empower the rank-and-file members as much as possible. But that's where the power of any union lies. This means creating open democratic assemblies for regular discussion, debate, and decision-making among all members of the workplace. It means open and transparent bargaining and the direct election of shop stewards and bargaining committee members subject to immediate recall by a majority of the shopper union. And it means the direct election of local and national union leaders from within the workplace who are committed to the interests of the working class subject to the immediate recall subject to immediate recall and who earn no more than the annual wage of the average worker also really important the first of these necessities the assembly is at the heart of workers democracy the argument for workers assemblies follows from the idea that the actions a union takes should be decided by the workers themselves and grounded in debate and discussion by creating and maintaining regular assemblies of the workers and the sovereign body of all decisions Worker militancy can be developed and maintained even in the face of attacks from the bosses of state. Furthermore, these assemblies must, whenever possible, 
unify all workers under one fist, involving every worker in the workplace and these assemblies, whether in the union or not, and sometimes even workers from outside when in solidarity with the union, ensures that the union represents all workers' interests and thus undermines the boss's attempts to divide us. And more importantly, perhaps, these spaces allow workers to bring conversations to the table that go beyond the workplace and beyond wages and benefits, such as how to organize to fight to defend abortion rights or confront racist police violence in our communities. Okay, for workers' assemblies to function, they must be based on full democracy, freedom of political tendencies and opinion that defend the interests of workers, and voting on resolutions that must be carried out by the union and its members. In other words, the rank and file workers are the ones who have the who have to make decisions from when to take act work actions and what the demands to fight for are to the constitution of the union itself. And that I think is again a lot of things that Colin chat talks about is making sure you've got your list of demands down, figuring out what is it that we're fighting for and organize and make sure that it works and is best for all the workers. These kind of spaces won't oh, come from above. Probably- that Kwame Turi quote, you know, where mobilization means everyone's against the same thing, whereas organization, which is what you need to be a union, means everyone has to be for the same thing. We have to figure out what we're for. Oh, it's, it's such a great thing. It, and it's actually in uh, Joe's right. video in the second one, I believe. Um, so, again, you need okay. of thought. Yep, unity of thought. Need. That's right. So, Those of us in existing unions will have to fight for the authority and the right to call meetings, issue statements, talk to the press, organize events, etc. That's one of the things that we talked about in our article is why couldn't we get anybody from ALU to answer a press inquiry? And as we form new unions, as as those unions grow, it's imperative that we continue to agitate for the broadest possible discussion and debate on the workers. What just happened? Why couldn't we get anybody from ALU to answer a press inquiry? I don't know, you found an echo? And as we form new unions, as those, hey. as those unions grow, hey. it's imperative that we continue to what advocate the? for the broadest possible discussion and debate among the workers. Where are you playing it at? I don't know. Where's this coming from? Your cell phone? Yeah, maybe. Holy moly. <laughs> How did that happen? Okay, I don't know. That was, um, that was really know. bizarre. Think... Hey, everybody. I thought we, Leahy, I thought we told you to put down the booze. God, we like, have been watching a lot of Trailer Park Boys too much. You hanging out with Randy Bobandi? Yeah, again. I think I think you might have been. I don't know what the heck that was. The call is coming from inside the house. That's right. That's right, Warren. <laughs> extra booyah. All right. So uh, again, those who work and form the rank and file of the union are the best ones to determine their own destiny. A fact that challenges the notion that unions are something external to the workers and somehow meant to only provide services. It's in fact completely the opposite. Workers made unions. And unions are supposed to be the two the tools for struggle. So, in addition to sure. these assemblies, we also need sim- smaller bodies of delegates and leaders to help organize and to bargain directly with the boss when necessary, and to carry through the decisions of the the assembly. Again, you need structure, but these delegated leadership bodies, however constructed, have to be chosen directly by the rank and file members themselves and wholly accountable to them. So we need to choose like the people that we want to represent us around us. How about that amazing concept? Mm-hmm. The reason for holding these positions should like. be out of a dedication to the worker struggle and not to enrich themselves or accumulate power. Almost like giving it to the people who don't necessarily want it in the first place. Therefore, 
elected positions in a union have to guarantee their rotation to make room for new leaders. The positions should be for a short period of years, after which leaders return to their jobs. We cannot continue to allow our leaders to occupy positions for decades while making six-figure salaries far and above what the members make. I can't, I can't agree more with that. Um, therefore, all elected leaders and officials must be chosen for their commitment to the union and for their fellow and their fellow workers and to the working class more broadly. I don't think that's unreasonable. Furthermore, they must be subject again to immediate recall by the rank and file at all times. And those who receive salaries should receive no more than the average wage of the average worker. Limiting the privilege and salaries of union leaders in this way helps to keep them directly connected to the struggles and interests of the members they represent. Hmm? In almost all unions, members' activities tend to re revolve around bargaining, but workers should be able to fight for their demands at any point. Whatever the situation is, we need to be able to fight for open bargaining. Bargaining should include all the membership, and not just updates, but access to the daily negotiations and to the most complete and current information. This is going to allow the negotiations to be discussed at rank and file meetings so that every worker can decide on the best steps for the struggle to take with full transparency. All this is totally opposed to the top-down approach of the current unions, where decisions are made at a small table in a closed room, and in general, with the presence of experts and lawyers from outside consulting firms that have little to do with workers' lives or interests. Again, I think... Yep. If Shadowband is still here, he would pretty much totally agree with everything you've seen so far. Now, political independence. So while democracy is essential for the workers' movement, equally important is political independence from the state and the bourgeois party. This is what I keep talking about, and this is something that I was screaming about. The state has increasingly co-opted the labor movement since the passage of the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, and Taft-Hartley in 1947. Again, shout out to Refugee oh. for talking about the PRO Act, talking about Taft-Hartley, which are laws that respectively legalized and limited union activity. Okay, because these laws mm -hmm. brought well, unions... the PRO Act was going to, but yes. Right, that was the plan. But again, they already have these. Because these laws brought unions under the formal yes. jurisdiction of the federal government, union leaders and bureaucrats have poured more and more money into an effort into negotiating with the state over mostly legislative issues and spent less and less time organizing the rank and file workers for struggle against the bosses. I see you nodding your head pretty well. Yep. That's good. This process has over the last 80 years produced many national labor unions, the little more than lobbying agencies committed to negotiating for the rights of labor within the narrow framework of what the capitalist state will allow. The failure of this strategy of coolly negotiating with the enemy is evidenced by decades-long decline in unionization rates and the shrinking number of major work stoppages each year, not to mention the general decline in working conditions, standards of living, and even life expectancy of most working people. Now, again, part of that is the COVID mess that was inflicted upon us the last few years. Um, also, I would talk about, again, coolly negotiating with the enemy. It, um, yeah. You're letting them set all the terms, 100%. And mm -hmm. again, they're going to talk about to build real power for themselves, working power must break the ties between our unions and the parties of the rich, namely the Democrats and the Republicans, of course. The leadership of both these political parties is composed of millionaires and businessmen and businesswomen. It is in their interest 
to maintain the current system of exploitation and to tightly control and limit the power of labor, even through repression or just as frequently co-optation. The Democrats may claim to represent the workers and President Biden may claim to be the most pro-union president ever. But in reality, their interests are not aligned with those of working people. Look at it, what happened just this week during the rail strike. During their electoral campaigns, they received millions of dollars from the very corporations that we're fighting. For example, the Democratic Party has received huge donations and endorsements from union-busting executives like Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, who almost ran for president on their ticket, and Amazon contributed almost $11 million to Democrats, and of course, $2 million to Republicans, because they've got to pay off both sides, and that's just 2020 alone. The Democratic Party often works with and employs the same law firms and polling firms that help corporations like Amazon and others run union-busting campaigns in our workplaces. This is Perkins Coie. We've talked about that how many times already? Okay, that's one of the, the biggest law firms yeah. there is, uh, DNC-affiliated. Anytime you hear Perkins Coie, get your ears up, man, because chances are some nefarious shit's happening. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, they refuse to fight on key issues that affect working and oppressed people, like abortion rights or the right to not be murdered by cops. Douchebags. Uh, some more progressive union leaders, like left bureaucrats and even some young activists, nonetheless still believe that we can use the Democrats for our own interests while remaining loyal to the needs of working people and unions. They believe we can use so-called progressive Democrats like Sanders and AOC to draw attention to our struggles to pass legislation like the PRO Act and to win more popular support for the ongoing unionization efforts of workers everywhere. But threading that needle is not easy. Such strategies inevitably lead to co-optation, as we've seen time and time again. Worse still, they'll sow political confusion among the class, distracting working people from the real tasks of building power through working class tactics of struggle and, and organization. By working with and withholding criticism of the Democratic Party of certain of it or certain of its members, and by failing to make clear at every opportunity the need for class independence, such organizing efforts run the risk of marching our unions even further into the arms of the state. Are you listening, Chris Smalls, sir? This is why the Democratic Party uh, yes, remains. This, this is why the Democratic Party remains the graveyard of both social movements and workers' aspirations. Party's real interests. The party's real interests are shown in its complete failure to pass even moderately progressive reforms, such as the Employee Free Choice Act or the PRO Act, which we know are corporate giveaways and nonsense and garbage, which labor unions have spent millions of dollars and countless hours in effort to lobby for. As we build new unions, we must be on guard not to reproduce the bureaucratic structures and class collaboration that have led us to this current impasse. The bureaucratic leaders of our of our unions see it as their job to maintain their close ties to political establishment by delivering labor peace and attempting to keep rank and file workers in line. Fuck those guys. Every two years, our union leaders, yep. from the AFT to the Teamsters, endorse bourgeois politicians mm -hmm. without any kind of real consultation with the membership. They then promise us partial improvements in our workplaces, decided by them and not the workers in exchange for supporting their candidates with money, endorsements, and get-out-the-vote efforts that build political and ideological bridges between the most active and often the most well-intentioned union members and the Democratic Party establishment. Fucking gross. Sorry, man, I'm getting angry. In the same way, they no, defended... 
They defend and justify such state institutions at the, as the NLRB, presenting them as fair and impartial arbiters, as if the state doesn't function to defend the wealth of capitalists. The recent fine imposed by the NLRB on the mine workers in Alabama, the, the warrior met coal workers, it's a perfect example of why we can't rely on the state to arbit arbitrate our disputes with our working class enemies. Unions should be created and organized according to workers' interests, but instead they have to comply with the state's many restrictions. The capitalist and imperialist U.S. state determines whether a union can even exist and what's legal about its functioning and what's not, how it should proceed to negotiate, what labor actions are legal and illegal, and whether and when it is allowed to strike. That's insane. As Marx and Engels said a long yep. time ago, the executive of the modern state is nothing more but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. We cannot fool ourselves into thinking that our interests amount to anything more than a tactical consideration for the work for the ruling class. That's right. Bourgeois politics are willing to tolerate, some more, some less, the existence of unions, as long as these are limited to fight for minor concessions and maybe for a time a slightly bigger piece of the pie, as they say. But these parties are interested yeah. in workers insofar as those workers help maintain the capitalist economic system. They will never accept and would certainly never support any union that explicitly questions or challenges the foundations of capitalist exploitation. Again, we're looking, we're talking about co-ops now. They want to use our unions yeah. for their own interests, to have a grasp on the workers' movement from the inside, and that's possible, thank, right? And that's possible thanks to the role of the union bureaucracy. In that sense, we have to see unions as a terrain of political struggle and dispute, and we need to fight to recover them for a working class strategy. Yes, they work just as much for the corporations as they do for, for the workers, unfortunately. So the profits of the bosses depend on continued exploitation and coercion of the working class, and therefore our interests are deeply opposed to those of our bosses. I don't think that's really surprising in that sense there's no thing there's no, there's no such thing as a fair share of the pie so long as there's a class of people living off the work of others we will continue to live in an unequal society grounded in exploitation and oppression of the many for the benefit of the few what have i heard that before yep but even as we fight for higher. higher wages better benefits and more humane working conditions here at home we must not forget that we live in a society that benefits not only from our exploitation but also from the ruthless exploitation of our fellow workers internationally. Shout out to Nick from Socialist MMA. He's been taking it through the teeth this week, and he's one of the people that's been talking heavily about international class struggle. Many times the concessions that workers can get here in the United States are a consequence of imperialist policies. U.S. capitalists can compensate for the loss of some profits here while exploiting natural and human resources from other countries, and even taking advantage of the immigrants that are forced to flee their countries to be exploited here under even worse working conditions than native workers. In that sense, our unionism must also be internationalist and anti-imperialist, and union democracy is the only way to push and fight for that political perspective. Yep. Our demands go beyond what we can fight for in our, working, in our workplace and against our own bosses. We need to work with unite with other workers and movements to fight for broader goals. And I think, again, Chris Chris started to do this in, in early May, and they had a, they, they arranged that May Day walkout, that first 
in, in 2020. I don't know if everybody remembers that, but we were going back and watching some old footage and that guy, look, he is an organizer. He's, we, it's hard to see what's happening right now. And we really want to see the workers represented properly and not to, and they need a proper PR team and a proper PR representation arm uh, that is not affiliated with the Democratic Party this. or unions. Um, yeah, I mean, you got to be able to see how they're playing you. Yeah. So, like, at some point, your ignorance of the game, like, you know, like you're going to get pulled, you got, they're going to bench you at some point. Yep. You know? So again, right. we need to fight racism, sexism, xenophobia, and every type of discrimination and bigotry. We need to fight for pre free and public health care and education. We need to fight for reproductive rights, immigrants' rights, housing rights, and much more. To strengthen our struggle inside and outside the workplaces, we must recover our own methods of struggle. We need to organize walkouts, strikes, picket lines. Hurting their profits by withholding labor is one of our most powerful tools. If there's one thing the pandemic made clear, it's that we're the ones who run the society. We produce the wealth, and we should be the ones deciding what to do with it. That was a long one. I'm sorry about that. But I again, I thought that was super important. And there were so many uh, really excellent quotes and tie-ins to what we had written and talked about last week on INN News as well. We went through the article. So if, if you... Uh, if you haven't seen INN News from Wednesday night, episode 24, Reef Colin and I go through the article that was a collaborative effort from a bunch of INN members, as well as watch the videos that Joe made, uh, STFQ Shitlib on Twitter. Um, they were excellent videos that really tried to encapsulate what we wrote in warning all the things that we'd seen in the alignment with the Democratic Party in how... We need to be solely focused on building unity and not necessarily talking about what, what we're against, but what we're for um, and how we're here to help and we want to help. So anyone who hasn't seen that, please, by all means, go check that out. We'll, we've gone through it uh, and you can go to independent uh, indienewsnetwork.substack.com and it's pinned up up at the top, I believe right now is is it's called Amazon Labor Union and Chris Smalls. Sadly, many red flags. That's the title of the article that we had written. Uh, Reef helped contribute to it due to a lot of the research, and uh, he was behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Big Mad Crab, I believe, was helping with some stuff too. Well, Reef, he actually did a thumbnail for, for Joe's like, second video. That was badass. I did. We should watch that, um, actually. That would go well with this. Um, yeah, that's 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 not a bad idea. Let me see if I, if I can bring that up on my end here. Um, in the meantime, I'll talk about the other contributions I did, like all these stuff that we talked about on INN News, um, on Smalls. What we should do is pull all those out as a playlist, which I'll, I'll try to do that. Um, we talked about the AFT, um, and how corrupt it was, uh, recently when Smalls attended their shindig. Yep. Um, and all the stuff that they were pushing for the, for the teachers union, um, that's definitely very democratic right down the line down to ukraine funding and and covid stuff i mean just practically could have been a dnc you know flyer yeah um, we'll try to find warren showed up 
Um, the you probably do better pulling up your article. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Isn't that in there? Yeah. Or just go to yeah, no, that's videos good point. on no, that's good INN idea. and we go one of them. We but, go down um, to the bottom. I'm sure it's there. Yeah, it should uh, be in there. I think. Boo, 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 boo. Yep. There it is. There it is. Boom. Pause that. Hold on. And now I got to turn on. Whip. All right. This was again Joe SDFU shitlib. This was uh, Wake Up Chris. For the first union in American history. Yeah! You're trouble, Biden. Our friend Joe, our good friend Joe. Well, you, well, you got it done in one place. Yeah. Let's not stop. That's right. Seriously? What the fuck? Biden, our friend Joe, our good friend Joe. You are such a fucking asshole who doesn't care about the people that you fucking represent. You know, it wasn't until we were victorious that we got any type of support. So uh, to have it now, you know, visiting the White House, uh, having a comrade in Bernie Sanders. Seriously? What the fuck? You got no friends in Washington, D.C. Your enemy is laughing at you. Wake up, asshole. I didn't go in there to, to just do a photo op. I definitely had some demands that they didn't play in. Um, wow. You know. And, and the whole thing about going to meet him because you think it's going to elevate the situation? No. No. Not even the fact that the co-option that can take place that we've seen from almost every single leftist outlet out there that eventually gets swallowed up by the establishment. Biden was the architect for the conditions that created the fact that you are fighting like the Dickens that we are all living in right now. Realize that it's not a, a left or right thing. It's not a Democrat or a Republican thing. It's a workers thing. Just because you say this isn't about Republican or Democrat doesn't mean it's so if the actions don't back it up. God, I love that moment, especially with uh, Senator Graham kind of like looking down and shit. You know he was embarrassed. First of all, I want to address Mr. Graham. Um, first of all, you know, you're, it sounded like you was talking about more of the companies and the businesses and your speech, but you forgot that the people are the ones who make this, these companies operate. And I think that it's in your best interest to realize that it's not a, a left or right thing. It's not a Democrat or a Republican thing. It's a workers thing. Just like hearing Lindsey Graham's name, I, I get like, I can feel my heart rate go up. I, like the <laughs> anger starts to like, you know, yeah, build inside me. I definitely went off script. I had to hold it in. Yeah. <laughs> the notion that people in the United, united in this democracy will outmatch, outmatch tyranny is the oldest American ideal. The reason why we're an independent union is because we don't want to get tied to politics because we're representing 8,300 members that we know are going to have different political views. I mean, I've been on tour across the country. It's been like a real hot leaving summer. It's been like a real hot leave of summer. There'll be no peace on this campus for three or four days. White students even be afraid of you. And after three or four days, you will sit down and you'll forget about it. Just because 
everybody's against the same thing doesn't mean everybody is for the same thing. Unity doesn't represent what you're against. It represents what you are for. Now yep, I hear Warren like Cotter. he is in talks of writing a memoir. Man, oh man, oh man, oh man. Uh, and a friend of the show, Franco, I think also reached out um, recently. Um, friend of the I show, Sabby too. Sabby has also tried yeah. to reach out. I, I just feel like we want sit rep, man. Like where, where's the actual work happening? What's actually happening? What's the plan and how can we help? And how can we help organize and get the word out and right. spread the stories of what's happening in the warehouses and hold meetings offline for workers? We want to help. We have a voice. We know how to run streams. We know technology. We know marketing. We know social media. We have skills that we can lend to this. And we're offering and we're kind of screaming here that we want to help. Of course, they try to demonize my character. You know, they're saying that the union dude is going to go towards my Lamborghini. But they don't know me. I'm more of a BMW guy. But there you go. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't even enough for me to even come to the table. We drippy. Yeah, it's drippy. Dude. Yes, it is. Joe just kind of. That was fair use of that, by the way. Yes, that, fair use. Definitely YouTube. fair use. YouTube has not been liking the use video. of that song. Yeah, Chris used it crap down. and rewrote it. Yep, yep. He got got that union creepy. Um, so, um, again, we do have a couple more stories, but uh, yeah. So, I think again, Luigi and and James Dennis Hoff over there at Left Voice, great article over there, great insights. I wish they had talked a little bit about workers seizing the means of production, but I get a copyright bing every week, Colin. It's all right. Every time Reef does this stuff, we get dinged, so it's all good. Um, so we've got a couple more stories, and these are really interesting ones. Uh, and again, I had not heard this anywhere. This is a guy who I, I'm a subscriber to, Jordan Schachtel, The Dossier. I'm a big fan of this, this no. outlet. We've We've talked about him before. We've covered some of his stories. Yes, we have. <laughs> By the way, um, the number 51, I wanted to, to shout out to everyone living in the Seattle area. That number 51 is for Ichiro and Randy Johnson. They're both retired number 51s, and they're kind of the best 51s in any of the history of sports. And that's what I've been doing with the episode numbers lately. So anybody into the Seattle area and baseball stuff, and it's not just baseball. I've been pulling from NASCAR and uh, basketball, wherever I can kind of think about where where it makes sense. Oh, Michael and, Jordan, stop it! Get some help. No, I don't want to get some help. I, I I like I like what's going on right here. So, so yeah, this is a really fascinating one. Again, Twitter whistleblower handlers played a key role in facilitating the sham Trump impeachment. Hmm, what's going on here? Whistleblower hmm. aid is funded by a notorious left wing oh, billionaire. Oh, ketchup lady. Not that one. You get to talk about ketchup? No. Damn. So, well, what what am I supposed to do with all this ketchup? Uh, God. What? The dossier and I brought the ketchup here just for the ketchup. I I don't I, I don't get that one, but okay. A bipartisan battle convened in Congress convened last Tuesday to bring forward an alleged Twitter whistleblower by the name of Peter Mudge Zadko. What a weird name. Former executive of the social media giant, mm -hmm. right? Zatko, who previously had been employed at Google and DARPA. 
among other high-profile organizations and fed, um, hurled all kinds of accusations at Twitter, alleging one major scandal after another. What's going on here? Now, again, I so brought this up. The ketchup lady, do you, just just to be clear, that in, this is, Indy doesn't follow mainstream news enough nope. to know the ketchup lady. Nope. Uh, they talked about Trump throwing ketchup all over the, like, White House. Because he got mad. Oh yes, like it was okay. When they talked about him in the van. I do remember like, that whole trying to like ordeal. choke the Secret Service guy from the back. Okay, I do remember that's that how too. Kind of choking works. Okay, so here we go. Um, Finally, sorry about all that. Uh, I do have the video ready and queued up, and I believe this will work, and you'll be able to hear it. And go. No. I think this. your microphone may need. There it is. Oh, he's muted. Thank you very much, sir. Chairman Durbin, Ranking Member Grassley, members of the committee, I appear before you today to answer questions about information I submitted in written disclosures about cybersecurity concerns I observed while working at Twitter. My name is Peter Zatko, but I'm more often referred to by my online handle as Mudge. For 30 years, my mission has been to make the world better by making it more secure. From November 2020 until January 2022, I was a member of Twitter's executive team. In my role, I was responsible for information security, privacy engineering, physical security, information technology, and Twitter global support. I'm here today because Twitter leadership is misleading the public lawmakers, regulators, and even its own board of directors. What I discovered when I joined Twitter was that this enormously influential company was over a decade behind industry security standards. The company's cybersecurity failures make it vulnerable to exploitation, causing real harm to real people. And when an influential media platform can be compromised by teenagers, thieves, and spies, and the company repeatedly creates security problems on their own, this is a big deal for all of us. When I brought concrete evidence of these fundamental problems to the executive team and repeatedly sounded the alarm of the real risks associated with them, and these were problems brought to me by the engineers and employees of the company themselves. The executive team chose instead to mislead its board, shareholders, lawmakers, and the public instead of addressing them. This leads to two obvious questions. Why did they do that? And what were the problems and vulnerabilities identified? And that's what I'm here to talk about. So first, why did they do that? To put it bluntly, Twitter leadership ignored its, ignored its engineers because key parts of leadership lacked the competency to understand the scope of the problem, but more importantly, their executive incentives led them to prioritize profits over security. Upton Sinclair famously said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. This mentality is exactly what I saw at the executive level at Twitter. 
I just want to mention that's that, that's one of my favorite all-time quotes, that Upton Sinclair thing. And it's also a quote that was famously used by Al Gore in, in An Inconvenient Truth, which is kind of funny that I did a callback to that. I didn't even remember that he had used this uh, that that phrase, but that that's pretty telling. Uh, it's it's pretty. Um, it, it's a, it's a quote from Up Sinclair about it's a, it's difficult to get a man to understand something if his salary depends on his not understanding it. But let me let, there's an hour, gotcha. there's a little a little under two minutes left. I'm gonna I'm gonna show that and then we'll uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about this and continue the article, which is really interesting about like who he's tied to and where he's coming from and who's funding him. So what a surprise, Coolio. Not, probably not Coolio. So what are the problems I discovered? Two basic issues. First, they don't know what data they have, where it lives, or where it came from, and so, unsurprisingly, they can't protect it. And this leads to the second problem, which is the employees then have to have too much access to too much data and to too many systems. You can think of it this way, which is it doesn't matter who has keys if you don't have any locks on the doors. And this kind of vulnerability is not in the abstract. It's not far-fetched to say that employee inside the company could take over the accounts of all of the senators in this room. Given to the real harm, given the real harm to users and national security, I determined it was necessary to take on the personal and professional risk to myself and to my family of becoming a whistleblower. I did not make my whistleblower disclosures out of spite or to harm Twitter. Far from that, I continue to believe in the mission of the company and root for its success. But that success can only happen if the privacy and security of Twitter's users and the public are protected. In accepting an executive position at Twitter, I made a personal commitment to Mr. Dorsey, the board, the greater public, and myself that I would drive the changes needed at Twitter to protect the users, the platform, and democracy. That's what I'm continuing to do here today. I stand by the statements I made in my lawful disclosures, and I am here to answer any questions you may have about them. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. So that's an interesting statement. Um, I don't think it's terribly a surprise to too many that they've got gaping holes in their security. Um, Raising. Okay. But here, it's Mudge, not, uh, is, is his nickname, by the way. Um, so former security Man. chief, again, now this is in the Associated Press, and we know sometimes, you know, this they like to frame narratives. But again, what they're saying is, is that they're they're vulnerable to exploitation by teenagers, thieves, and spies, and put the privacy of its users at risk. Right. So, yep. at the beginning of the hearing, it wasn't clear exactly what Zatko, who was fired by Twitter, was trying to accomplish. Then he opined that the FTC and SEC did not have the necessary capacity to oversee big tech. Hmm. Go to your to your humble correspondent. This translates a, as a call to staff up big government as regulatory bodies, right? That portion of the testimony, coupled, coupled with his team's targeted leaks to the likes of CNN and the Washington Post, 
coupled with the strange reality of a whistleblower being celebrated by a bipartisan Congress, is certainly cause for suspicion. I hope you got red flags going off on your side. Not just big giant air quotes. Yeah. So Zacco and his handlers, again, this is from Wired Magazine. It says, the recipients were the Washington Post and CNN, and their stories went live under a shared embargo on August 23rd. He gave interviews to both organizations, which treated him lovingly. The Post photographer even captured an artsy shot of him in his mirror reflection, full of Oracle vibes. So I did a little bit of research into the organization handling Mr. Mudge. He's being represented by a media relations and legal team from a nonprofit called Whistleblower Aid, which represents itself as an outfit that seeks to supply attorneys to whistleblowers from both government and the private sector to, quote, protect us from law-breaking that we may never learn about. This is the same organization that represented <laughs> Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen, who also didn't yeah. pass the whistleblower smell test. Haugen, like Mudge, is paradoxically blowing the whistle to government and against a private entity, like Mudge, she advanced an implicit status, status agenda. Um, following her testimony, Haugen commenced a speaking tour that was funded by a who's who of left-wing billionaires, including George Soros's Open Society Foundations. Again, this is not a dog whistle against Soros, but every time anything like this shows up, Open Society seems to have its ugly head somewhere close by. So here's the person, mm -hmm. some of us, and this is really interesting. You have a question for a famous whistleblower, Francis Haugen. Okay, this is an organization that is linked and that put on an organization that, that put on a thing. So now here's where things get really diabolical. Whistleblower aid played a key role in the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Didn't that have to do with like Ukraine stuff? Yep. So this goes back again, March, March 4th. We're proud to have represented the whistleblower who spoke out against Trump's inappropriate efforts to withhold assistance from Ukraine. Yep. All right. Again, this was from Rolling Stone. Oof. So. I remember that. I, right? Yes. Me too. Yep. It was one of the most significant whistleblower disclosures in American history, and we couldn't be more proud of our work in the case. Watch the behind-the-scenes story of how W. Badelaws and Andrew Bakage and Mark Zaid ESQ assisted the Ukraine whistleblower, right? So this is from WBAID Law, Whistleblower Aid Law. Whistleblower Aid provided both counsel and media relations work to an anonymous intelligence community employee who's been identified by Congress as CIA official Eric Chimarella, who alleged that President Trump pressured the Ukrainian government to accept a quid pro quo and launch an investigation of Joe and Hunter Biden. If you're a news junkie, surely you know the ins and outs of this story, right? But if you don't, here's a short summary. Much of the alleged quid pro quo scandal was based on hearsay, sourced to a phone call between Trump and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. No evidence surfaced of any monetary payment or governmental policy that supported the allegations. Okay. The transcript of the phone call between Trump and Zelensky was eventually released, and it did not show anything particularly scandalous or abnormal. Zero evidence ever emerged back to the claims sourced to Chimarella, 
But despite these shortcomings, Congress found the votes to impeach Trump over the manufactured scandal. So, who's the tech billionaire helping the Facebook whistleblower take on one of the world's most powerful companies? Pierre Omidyar. <laughs> Our friend Pierre. We've, we, we, we've covered I'm him like before. PayPal guy. He is part of the PayPal Mafia yep. eBay founder. So he was actually like one of the... He, he was the granddaddy of them all because it was his platform that even facilitated the need for PayPal in the first place. And then he created PayPal. And he sat yeah. on the board of PayPal. So this was a Glenn Greenwald article from more than a year ago talking about Pierre Omidyar's financing of the Facebook whistleblower campaign reveals a great deal. And I'm not going to go into this and you can certainly uh, read the Glenn, the Glenn article. I'll link to the Jordan Schachtel article for the dossier in the show notes and in the, in the sub stack afterwards. But beyond Chimarella, whistleblower aid has represented countless additional whistleblowers, such as the Vinvin twins, who, who of course accused the former president of a variety of unproven misdeeds. Whistleblower aid is backed by Pierre Omidyar, a statist hmm. ideologue whose, in, whose doctrine advocates for a technocratic tyranny in the form of stakeholder capitalism. He's a major Democratic Party donor. Omidyar is also known in politics as the money man behind countless never-Trump campaigns. What a shock. He's also behind the Maidan coup, but that's another story. Um, here's a, an article from 2020 where uh, he's a longtime donor to leftist causes and in the same league as Steyer, Soros, and Bloomberg. And he's a major, he's got TDS. So is the outfit behind the Ukraine right. collusion hoax? Funded by a far left mega donor, really representing authentic whistleblowers, or is something more nefarious in the works? And I, that is the end of this piece. And he's asking questions and pointing out his observations. And hey, who is that guy? Uh, hey, that's a big man, crab dude. Hey, what's up, crab? Welcome to uh, how did we miss that? Thanks for hanging out and thanks for the thumbnails. and. All that stuff. I actually grabbed the Pierre, the uh, the Pierre look for the. Who are these people? Oh wait, I, I remember. <gasps> well, since Warren's here, we we do a hit a kid even. Who are these people? Yes, we have her too. Jesus, you... just hit all the soundboard buttons. Uh, I could, but I'm just not going to. Um, In a row. Yep. You were like, oh yeah, soundboards. Bip, bop, boop. <laughs> right, <laughs> we we have sounds. Owns. Yes. Uh, so what's up, Anthony Malecki, oh. Colin, Valerie, Lady Lazy Quackhole, whoever that is. That's awesome. Twitter is trash. Unfortunately, yes. We've been trying to get people to go over to Telegram and do private chats in Telegram instead of Twitter. It's just nobody wants to use it. It sucks. I'm, I'd much rather do DMs off of Twitter's prying eyes, but people just don't seem to want to do that. Um, using Twitter is like wrestling yeah. a midget. <laughs> That's great. <clears throat> okay, here's a mudge, don't fudge. And Warren. It does sound like a Dr. Seuss villain. Yes, the mudge, don't fudge. Kitty, there we go. What's up, Warren? Good to see Warren. Shout out to Extra Booyah. Congrats on a thousand Rockfin followers for Extra Booyah, 2000 for Tara. We're getting real close to 2000 ourselves. So go to extra, uh, go to extra, go to rockfin.com slash IND left news, rockfin.com slash IND left news. You can follow for free. 
if you want to sign up for the premium platform. Now, here's the thing. I saw a thing today in my work Slack that um, YouTube is now forcing 5 to 10 ads, not 5 to 10 seconds, but 5 to 10 ads prior to watching a video. And that means they're trying to push people to a premium. And that means that Rockfin is that much more valuable now because it is ad-free. And that's one of the things that I love most about Rockfin, on top of the fact that they don't censor people. Even love solidarity, welcome. E Heller, you're still here. Tastes like mud. Looks like fudge. It's mudge. Yep, that that's good. Um so all right, yeah, we missed Tara. Tara will be back soon. She's just taking a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a vacation break. She's she's been going hard for six months. Come on. I mean, she put out, I think, about 25 or 30 yeah. different live streams, and we've got about 50 clips, I think, that, that are still unpublished that we still have yet to release from her stream. So we've got a lot of material and content for her. And we're I'm sure she'll be back doing live streams Mondays, Tuesday nights soon on INN and on her channels. And uh, and shout out to, to, to Tara. You know, she she had to deal with uh, some wild wildfire stuff herself last week. Uh, thankfully, everybody's okay and, and nothing was really too bad. But I think she might have even had to evacuate, but it, it was pretty brutal. Um, all right. We got one more story and then we can do boats. All right. Uh, no, I, actually one and a half more stories because we're going to also shout out some more of Krebs' awesome artwork. But first, we're going to talk about Portland, Maine. This is a little bit of a long article from, from Donnie Donnie over at, uh, at Sludge. And it showed up in truth out. David Moore, not Donnie Donnie, David Moore's partner co-founder of Sludge. Sludge is a great independent outlet. They follow the money, and I love people that follow the money. And one of the things that we talk about is getting the money out of politics. How do we get the money out of politics? Well, the other thing we talk about is politics is local. So how do we start doing that? We start doing that at our local levels. And so David talked about with campaigns. Oh, so hang on, let me back up. And I didn't even read the headline, but the, the headline is Maine's biggest city will vote on public campaign financing measure. Well, that's that's cool, right? So, with campaign yep. spending on the rise in their city's elections, voters in Portland, Maine will decide this November on a ballot question that aims to level the playing field for local office seekers. About time. The ballot question called Clean Elections would create a voluntary public campaign financing program for candidates running for municipal office in Portland. One similar to a well-established program offered to candidates for state office in Maine. If offered, uh, if approved, the Clean Elections Program would make P Portland the first municipality in Maine to offer public funding for candidates. The measure would also ban all candidates from taking corporate contributions, prohibit entities under foreign influence from making expenditures related to ballot questions, and enhance transparency of campaign contribution information. It's all very good stuff. Well, no backup. Prohibit foreign. Yes. Foreign influence. Yes. That's a little weird. I I, I guess. Um. <clears throat> like Russia, I imagine. I was also thinking like multinational corporations not based in the United States even. That too, but like like Airbus, for example. That would also not like the town of Portland's going to buy sure. an Airbus, but. <laughs> so the clean elections initiative was approved to appear on the ballot on july 11th by the portland charter commission a body created in 2020 to review the changes 
to the city charter. The initiative then received the green light to appear on the ballot on September 1st from the city council. The campaign backing the measure, the measure, Fair Elections Portland, says it will, will put power back in the hands of the people. Well, we like that. And empower elected officials to represent the people who elected them rather than special interests. Like that. Though the U.S. Yeah. Census estimated Portland's population at a modest 67,000 as of 2020, city elections have become increasingly expensive. I think that's pretty much happening everywhere. With the most recent race for Portland and mayor mm -hmm. in 2019 saw record amounts of money with candidates raising into the six figures and PACs jumping in to, per to back their preferred candidates. Right? Fair Elections Portland, which again is, the leading, is leading the effort on the ballot question, compiled figures showing that overall spending in the 2019 race for mayor was more than double that of the city's 2015 contest, just four years earlier. So, and over the past decade, Candidate fundraising totals have also grown sharply in elections for Portland at large council seats, district council seats, and school board races, according to the data from Fair Elections Portland. Somebody's giving money to these guys because it's actually having an effect. So, quote, in 2017, a group of Portland activists started talking about the increasing problem of money in politics at the local level. So this is a uh, campaign manager for the Yes on Three campaign, the clean elections question. That's Anna Keller. Bless her. I mean, that's that's a lot. That's a huge undertaking. I want to get money out of politics locally, and so I'm going to start an initiative. That's that's like they got to give awards and medals to people like that. What had always been low key local elections were becoming much more hotly contested and high spending, and with all the concerns that go along, could ordinary people afford to run? What kind of influence was it buying over local officials? And Yes, it, it changes the conversation. So, with that problem, we were lucky to have a solution right in front of us. We already had a strong experience with using a clean election system at the state level. Passed by referendum in 1996, long-standing and popular program. Candidates for state legislature in the Portland area use it, and there's a high degree of familiarity, of familiarity of it within the city. Okay. Um, Decision was made to head a charter amendment for clean elections program. All good stuff. So this takes time. Again, it made a voluntary public funding system for participating candidates for all state offices was passed by voters in 1996 as the Maine Clean Elections Act and strengthened by referendum in 2015. The program requires candidates to gather a certain amount of $5 contributions from voters in their district in order to qualify then commit to only spending money they receive from the state while eschewing all private funding. They're giving up all private funding. Yeah. Well, look, this is city council. Like, you should not be taking money from local private interests and corporations to kowtow to what they're going to do and look at and, and do that over the best interests of the people that you represent, starting at the local level and moving up to the state and federal level. From 2016 to 2020 election cycles, 55% of state candidates participated in that grants program, according to March 2021 report for the group Democracy Maine. That's pretty remarkable. The report also shows that as of the 2020 election, public funding has grown to become the largest share of the state campaign spending after having been dominated by privately raised funding as recently as 2016. This is working. It's getting the money out. The private money. At its peak, up to 85% of legislature used clean elections, according to 
Andrew Bossi, and he's the former executive director of MCCE with seven out of 10 women in office saying that having a public financing option was very important to their decision to run. Again, it's, it's inclusive. It's bringing in voices that would not ordinarily be able to run because they'd be priced out of the market. In Portland, clean elections program proposed to start in 2023 and 24 elections would similar to the state system issue funding to participating candidates who prove support from Portland residents abide by limits on private contributions and agree to take part in at least one public debate among other things. I think that's awesome. As with public, as with the other public campaign financing programs in states and cities, city's clerk office, city clerk's office would create a searchable online database of all campaign finance information. Transparency. How about that? Any unused funds in Portland system would be returned to the clean elections fund. Sounds reasonable. A cost estimate, ready for this one, prepared by the Charter Committee, placed the per cycle total of the whole program at about $290,000, an amount substantially less than candidates had been raising for mayor, even before including fundraising for city council and school board positions. I mean, this makes so much sense. In addition, the clean elections question would require the city to adopt rules that ban corporate contributions to municipal candidates for office and prohibit foreign entities from spending on ballot questions, whether, whether by contributing to campaigns or by making direct expenditures. Now, the other thing I was thinking about on that foreign entities thing, um, if you remember Foxconn bought out a town in North Carolina and then started to like change the laws or lobby to have the laws changed, I believe they also bought the factory in Ohio that used to be the Lordstown Motors plant, and it might still be the Lordstown Motors plant, but it's now owned by a Chinese manufacturer. They also did that in Wisconsin. And when you start doing that and foreign companies buying major influence in these smaller municipalities, they start to push for more influence at the local level. Um, whether that is in the best interest of the community or not. So in June of last year, the main legislature passed the governor. The main, the main legislature passed, and the governor signed a bill prohibiting corporate contributions to candidates, joining twenty-three other states and the federal government in the prohibition. We're starting to get the money out, like for real. Companies may still establish separate segregated fund committees or PACs and allow PACs to use their telephones and computers. Okay, that's not good. It's a start. And there's a lot then talking about how the long path to the ballot, you know, how long this path was. The clean elections question will appear on the November ballot ballot after a delay of several years spent navigating legal questions. In the summer of 2019, organizations, including the League of Women Voters of Maine and Maine Citizens for Clean Elections, gathered enough signatures to place a clean elections question on the ballot with over 8,000 signatures from Portland residents, right? In September 2019, however, the city council voted to prevent the citizens' initiative from appearing on the ballot, mounting an argument that the initiative would instead require a lengthier charter revision process, a decision that triggered years of, of legal course. challenges from advocates, right? Keller says that in 2019, the coalition reached formidable signature threshold with volunteer efforts across the city, a, quote, combination of door-to-door, -door, street corners, and farmers' markets, and community meetings. 
One campaign volunteer led outreach in Portland's South Sudanese community. Another brought clean elections petitions to Portland arts and music venues. In the summer of 2020, the city put out a call for a charter commission, a process that Keller said opened up another path to the clean elections initiative to be approved to reach the ballot. She says that Fair Elections Portland groups work closely with commissioners, three appointed by the city council, nine elected by voters, in reviewing the municipal proposal in light of the state's public financing system. Right? So this is now, they're looking at this for an economic, from an economic standpoint. The main commission on government on governmental ethics submitted a memo in September 2021, right, to the city's charter commission on best practices for administering a campaign finance program that included guidelines on auditing and bookkeeping. That's super important. How are you going to keep it clean? Because it would approve an amendment to the city charter, Keller said the uh, initiative would pro would provide dedicated funding for the program, insulating the clean elections program from the risk of funding being stripped by the city council from year to year. That is super important. They could not have to be threatened. They could not, you know, uh, be exist under threat. Quote, after being caught up in the process since 2019, this ballot question is a return to the core issue, the cost of running for office. Let's talk about the problem of money, money in politics and how clean elections can fix that. People need to know that they have the opportunity to turn out and vote for something really positive that they already support in the state. But not just in Portland, Maine, also this year, voters in Oakland, California will decide on a ballot measure that would create a public campaign financing option called Democracy Dollars for City Candidates, a program similarly designed to increase participation in local politics and enable candidates from a wider variety of backgrounds to mount competitive campaigns for office. Public financing of elections is what we've always pushed towards and getting the yeah, private yeah, money out. For sure. And this, these are substantial steps to that I see <laughs> actually happening. Um, from well, grassroots... The few... The, the one country that seems to have people, politicians, like fully supporting Assange, Australia, also has it. Public funding of elections, yes? Yes, yes. Well, or it used I, to. I think most countries, I know England, for example, bans private financing of elections. However, we found out that members of parliament are actually moonlighting and lobbying, you know, moonlighting as employees of... Yeah. Private corporations, which is probably pretty bad. Yeah, and getting salary. Yep. So, um, <clears throat> again, I'm so happy that we've got some public financing of elections happening, even at a local or municipal level. Um, I think it's important. And Maine has always been on the forefront. They just recently implemented, I remember, ranked choice voting as well. Um, I want to just go back to the chat real quick. There really wasn't very much during this segment. But um, before we get to boats, our friend Misty, on October 8th, and it's only, I believe, three weeks away. Would you believe? Holy crap, it's only three weeks away. Yeah. Is organizing an incredible, incredible event that's going to take place in front of the Justice Department at 950 Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest in Washington, D.C. It is a Saturday, 
It's happening from noon to two. I think it might now be from noon to three because of the number of speakers that have already volunteered to attend. And it is an impressive and formidable lineup already, and there will be more speakers announced. Now, a Willie Bragg show. Welcome, man. Uh, good to see you. Thanks for joining the show and appreciate the follow and good to connect with you. I know Lucy says some good stuff, and I've heard some good stuff about you before. We've been in some Facebook groups and some other stuff over the years, so glad you're here, man. Uh, shout out to We're Twitch. Fucked. So, yes. So, I'm going to go through the list. Now, shout out again to our friend Big Bad Crab, the uh, creative director for INN, for making these graphics for this event, for Misty, and for Action for Assange, and for the Assange events worldwide. So it's not just happening in D.C., by the way. This is a companion event to a human chain being formed around Parliament in the U.K. and solidarity events happening all over the world on October 8th. Uh, we are fully in support of this effort. And again, we mentioned, and we kind of ripped the cover off this one, Yo Ben Cohen, former co-founder of Ben & Jerry's. He will be there. Again, it is now from noon to three. Uh, so you can see that was uh, updated. Okay. Randy Credico. Nancy to show up. Live on the fly. Um, uh, would we get Nancy to, to show up better than anything? I enjoy it. No, I, I, I don't think you would enjoy that. I like it better than anything else. I don't believe that either. I but. mean, Ben and Jerry's. No, she like we know she likes Jenny's ice cream. So Reverend Annie Chambers. Oh. He'll be there. Okay. Dave DeCamp, our friend from antiwar.com. We've covered some of his his articles. A friend friend of the network, friend of the show. And then we've got John Kiriaku. He's the former CIA whistleblower journalist. He works for Sputnik now. We've got Eliza Blue, human trafficking survivor, and she also is advocate for free press. She now works for The Blaze. We've got Marsha Coleman Adebayo. She's a former senior policy analyst and whistleblower for the EPA. We've got James Bovard from the USA Today. We've got Joe Loria from Consortium News. Love that guy. Garland Nixon, friend of the show, friend of the network. Shout out to Garland Nixon. Good man. Steve Donziger. We know this guy. Activist, writer, again, speaker for human rights. Mm -hmm. This is great. These are awesome graphics, by the way, Greg. We've got Jill Stein. A lot of people know her. Hillary Clinton certainly knows who she is. And we've got the Chris Hedges. Yes, Chris Hedges, the legend, will be appearing as well and speaking in front of the Justice Department on October 8th. So if you are there, be there. Please support this amazing effort. There is a GoFundMe. If you go to Misty's uh, Twitter page, twitter.com slash sarcasmstardust, I'm sure she has a pinned tweet, or you can find one pretty pretty high up without scrolling down pretty far to find the GoFundMe link. Um, we've donated. We're, we're, we're contributors. And, uh, and again, we're free Julian Assange. Free, free Julian Assange right fucking now because he... He did this for, for all of us, and he should not be sitting in Belmarsh. Jesus. In some ways, he is... He is. He died for your sins. Well, he's sitting there for, for, for all of us to have a free press, so... He, unfortunately, yeah. and I hate I hate putting that kind of deification on anybody, but damn, man, um, this is good stuff. Um, so, I these mean, are what, the links. He, oh, crap. What? 
Um, Brian. Um, what? Of Nazareth. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, so, here's all the links. Everybody knows them. IndieLeft.News and IndependentLeft.News and IndieLeft.com. They all go to the main website. IndependentLeft.Media. That's our link tree. You get the, all of our links, all of our channels, everywhere from there. Leftist.Today. That's our sub stack. I put that out. Try to put one out every day. Some days I miss. Um, most days it is a six pack where I embed six different videos that you can watch from across the independent media sphere that are actually the top six videos featured that day on IndependentLeft.News. It's also live stream alerts and Friends of Indie Left alerts and the home of the Friends of Indie Left podcast. So Substack is pretty important at leftist.today and leftisttoday.com. We do have the, the Bongfather shop at the bongfather.cloud. So you can get your Bongfather merch over there, your t-shirts, your flip-flops. My kids are begging me right now. Actually, thanks, Reef, for an INN set of flip-flops uh, because there is an Indie News Network store also at indienews.network is where, again, all of us are members. We are members, 23 members, and several of them are hanging out in this chat right now. Big Bad Crab, Shuts Fuck Up with Shitlid Joe, Big uh, Warren Uncle, Uncle, Uncle Warren, Colin, Radix Carter's over here. We got Noli D. We got so many, so many people, I can't even name them all. Love, love to my family, Blue Moon Red Wine, even the ones we haven't heard from lately, like Be the Change and Millennial Splaining. Love you. Good to hear from you. Ho ho hope we see you back soon. But um, I I think I'm just about done with what I've got going on here. So let's go back to a two-shot. And from the two-shot, hey, everybody. All right. Yeah, damn. Uh, Crab is getting better. And um, shout out to, to Joe and Crab from getting retweets from Jimmy Dore pretty quick this week. <laughs> um, they've, been, they've been pretty good at that. Um. I wanted yeah. to cover that that or that unionization article. Hour forty. I want to cover that 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 climate change stuff and how wealthy countries need to the absorb more stuff. responsibility. Yep, and and also yep. cover Misty's event on October eighth. Yep, and and cover what's happening with Maine in the public campaign finance, as well as a Twitter whistleblower. That's yep. a crazy story. How the Twitter whistleblower has links to or that that organization that's funding right. him. As links to Omidyar. So you definitely go There's back. that thing about following all the links at, at Indie News Network. Yep. We'll clip it up. Especially the uh, INN merch store where you can get bucket hats and crop flops and, hoodies and yep. uh, socks. Uh, I think, I think we're, I think Crab designed, designed the t-shirt that has to still get made. Even. Grab still designed a t-shirt yes. that we, we need to make, and it's all about throwing independent, uh, yes. throwing throwing mainstream media in the garbage, and that labels are bad. Yeah, independent. And I just stole I think his Jimmy line. Said she was going to throw some stuff up there as well. Yes. Um, we might even add some of the Warren merch, maybe even, um, or some <gasps> Warren merch, maybe even. Yes. Shout yeah, out to Uncle Warren. Go follow Extra Booyah, everyone. Rockfin.com/slash Extra Booyah. I think he's probably youtube.com slash extra booyah too. E X T R A B U L L A in the chat. But actually, for those who are not uh, watching live and who are listening on the podcast, booyah is B U L L A. So you can find this... all of the INN members, including Warren, in that uh, indienews.network link tree. 
you can just just hit sub on all of them. Go to meet yeah. the members and just find other links. Just just go do that. Go click down that. And and by the way, check out any news network on uh, Instagram. We've been doing more with INN on Instagram as well as facebook.com slash indie news network. We've been putting more live streams and doing more of Joe's videos and clips and trying to get some stuff up there. It's a beast to manage all of these different platforms and get all these different clips to all these different places. We're working on it and we can really, we actually can use some yeah. help. If you're interested in helping in volunteering and being a channel manager and learning what that's like, I've written up a description for what we could potentially use as far as help. If you're interested in learning more and getting involved in helping, it is a gargantuan effort to amplify all this independent media. We don't make any money off of this. Um, I'm self-funding and I lose money and I'm happy to do it because it's really important that we counter the mainstream and corporate narrative that's out there. And um, so again, any help that anybody's willing to give, we're certainly willing to accept um, and, and and we'll work with you and figure out a strategy, you know, way to do it. And again, we need people to manage Instagram. We need people to manage YouTube. We need people to manage Facebook and Twitch. I mean, we're on Twitch and we don't really do very much on there. Um, except the stream there. Yep. But if we got, if we had someone who could get more right. involved with the platform and engage more with it and kind of help us grow there, you could probably see our, our footing grow there. But, uh, again, we're over a thousand on your, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, remember INN is brought to you by viewers like you. So, <laughs> you know, very, very smooth it. and um, an announcer like, so again, we're, we're going to be, uh, as always. Like, keep listening to what little birds have to tell you. You got anything else? I would just say to question everybody's motivations, and uh, we will see you next Sunday night for episode 52 of How Did We Miss That? But thanks for everybody hanging out, and uh, we will see you soon, everybody. Night. If you like this podcast, please help our show grow by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, you can follow Independent Left News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at IND Left News and subscribe to our YouTube channel. To get news updates twice a day to your inbox, subscribe via email on the independentleft.news website. Join our Jetstream 24-7 News and Opinion Discord at independentleft.gg with more than 50 channels, each dedicated to a different outlet, journalist, YouTuber, or political comedian. Thanks, everyone. Remember to check out independentleft.news in your browser and subscribe to our podcast for news updates.